Okay, if you're, if you're hearing this, it means that you have delved back into the early episodes of the show. And whilst we really appreciate that, we just want to give a, I guess, a little disclaimer, Mateus. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the early episodes, I was editing this whole thing on a very amateur platform, and we basically just recorded a Zoom call. So um, that's why the quality isn't, you know, awesome. Yeah, we, we didn't have proper microphones. We didn't have proper headphones. But thankfully, it's grown grown into something that's, that's fairly successful now. We were able to have proper equipment and hire people to take care of all that pesky um, audio side of things. But we just wanted to put this out there and let people know that if if you do check out the early episodes and the sound quality isn't perfect, which we know it isn't, please just jump ahead and listen to some of those layer episodes. I don't know if you've got a couple that you particularly like that people can start on, Matthias. Oh, I mean, some of my favorites are, of course, uh, the Howl episodes we did with the Ed Gamester or um, uh, the talks that we had with uh, Shane as well. They were hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, we've got fan favorites like Ina Selvik and all of Highland who joined us for an episode. Um, and Lisa Gedalia was one of my personal favorites. Yes, and Terry Gunnell as well has some very interesting talks with some really high-profile professors. So go check him out. And now we're just dropping names. Now we're just dropping names. <laughs> <laughs> no, we thank you for, for starting out of the early episodes. And please do listen to them. We, you know, we put, still put a lot of love and effort into them. But you do have to bear with us on the on the audio side of things. It does get better as you go through the episodes. And, and I guess it's quite a... Some people enjoy seeing us go through that motion and go from amateur to a little less amateur, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's jump into the show. Welcome to the eighth episode of the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farrand, co-owner of the Company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined by the extremely knowledgeable Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so how how are you? How's how's life? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm sitting here in a, in a heap of snow. We've just had a blizzard. Actually, um, uh, my my car stopped working in the middle of that blizzard yesterday, so I had a lot of fun hanging out, uh, waiting for a tow truck. <laughs> oh yeah, I bet that was that was awful. Yeah, it was, it, was, it kind of sucked, but uh, you know, um, it's just a minor snow apocalypse. And speaking of which, um, so uh, we're post Brexit, Daniel. Are the, are the streets on fire? Um, <laughs> Um, I can officially say the the streets aren't on fire. The uh, Ragnarok has not happened. It's pretty much exactly the same as it was pre Brexit. It's the world's still spinning. Let's put it that way. That's good to hear. It is. Yeah. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad. It seemed for a second there that everything was gonna everything was gonna burn. Yeah. 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 But what can you say? I mean. I think I think you guys will figure it out eventually. <laughs> yeah, I think you know whatever happens happens. We're we're there now. The decision's been made. Whatever you know, it's sink or swim time, I guess. 
I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. No, it's um, as long as the EU and uh, the UK can figure it out together, uh, we can all be happy. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's looking like the USA is probably going to be a big player in whatever happens as well. Ooh, then you guys will get access to chlorinated chicken just like we have it. <laughs> oh, the wonders. Can't wait. <laughs> so I've just seen that you've got a Wagner tattoo. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I um and yeah, so when we talked about this on the podcast, I, I think I mentioned that I that I was gonna get it tattooed. Um, cause I've always liked the symbol and it is a meaningful symbol, uh, regardless of what, what kind of, uh, you know, uh, ideas or stories you want to attach to it. I have my own. So, so of course I'd get it tattooed. Um, and yeah, um, it, uh, it doesn't matter that, uh, the Wikipedia articles might not really uh, be saying anything, uh, that that's, that's historically accurate or, or however you want to put it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's a meaningful symbol and, uh, of course I was going to get it tattooed eventually. That's it. I mean, I don't think that just because we don't know the exact meaning behind it doesn't mean you can't attach your own meaning to it. You may get a few, few people coming up to you and saying how it's the a symbol of death and why would you tattoo that on yourself? But yeah, and I, I guess, I mean, when considering what, uh, uh, what's going on with the anti-terrorism task force in uh, in the UK? I, I guess you know it could also be interpreted as some kind of right-wing symbol, and that's not what it means to me. So, yeah, I, I know it, actually a few other scholars of, uh, of this subject who have also gotten it tattooed. So I'm not alone in it. <laughs> so is it is it a scholarly cult symbol? Yeah, let's say let's do it that. Let's call it a scholarly cult symbol. <laughs> it's a clan of professors. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Maybe. So, um, one of the things I wanted to quickly touch on is going back all the way to the runes episode. It's just something that's been niggling away at me, and I've been wanting to 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 flesh out in my own mind. Now. We know, obviously, that we've got the, the names and the meanings for the, the younger Fudark, the, the 16 runes. Now, obviously, I can't remember which I wish, but I know one of them means wealth. One of them is is related to money. And what I wanted to separate in my own mind, and hopefully for, for other people, because I've seen this come up many times on Facebook, people having arguments over it, and, and, and also, you know people get pretty heated in Facebook groups. Whether those meanings were a, a literal meaning as this symbol represented cattle. So if you were writing it down and you use that rune, that would mean literally cattle. Or would it be more of a... Um, I've lost the word. So more of a... Like a, if you put that down, you are wanting, wanting cattle. Or more of a metaphysical meaning. Does that make sense? Am I kind of just waffling on? I guess yeah. money would make more sense. Is it kind of like this means money or is it that if I write this, I'm hoping to get lots of money? Right. Okay. Yeah. So, um, uh, so, so basically the, the difference between is this, does this have a very concrete sense or, or can that, you know, idea, the concept be extended or expanded to, to other, um, other things. And, uh, so, 
what we can see from the, the manuscripts that we have available. Um, so um, the the earliest um, uh, writing down of the um, the, the, the younger Futhark and the Apicidaeum of Manicum doesn't give a lot of in, uh, information. It just uh, it just has like this little rhyme where these names for the various runes appear, and then some of them are just uh, some of them att attached to a little sentence, and others are just like the name that is listed with an uh, in in like the the sequence of the other names. So so that that one wouldn't give us a lot of you know good ideas of like what did they actually think about this, and as I mentioned in the podcast uh, back then when we were talking about it. The reason that it's probably written down this way is for um, the purpose of m memorizing it. And just like we have alphabetic, um, um, what do you call them? Um, I know what you mean. The, the little, you have like the little rhymes that, to help you remember it. Yeah. Just like we have alphabetic rhymes today. Um, so did they have similar things back then? So... The question is, of course, does that do those rhymes actually have a, a, a deep cultural meaning or was it just something that somebody came up with to remember them? And this is, of course, where you are free to interpret uh, the way that you want. And I, I think it's more interesting to talk about a possibility, possibility of like a deep uh, tradition behind it rather than just, you know, nursery rhymes or children's rhymes or something like that. So. Uh, I would say that if you look at that little uh, rune rhyme that we have in Apicidaeum Nobmanicum, you're not going to get a lot of like deep knowledge about it, about it because it just doesn't offer much. You have to bring in other sources to 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 get a good sense. And there's of course the um, Icelandic and Norwegian rune poems that are good uh, for that, and also the Anglo-Saxon rune poem where you see more of an expanded meaning because there the runes are attached to a longer stanza. And when we go to the F rune in the uh, Norwegian Icelandic tradition, um, it, it says something about how uh, wealth is the source of discord between uh, family members. So, so this is something about this, the particular experience in in that cultural context where uh, they have realized, oh, wait, people fight over inheritance, they fight over wealth, who owns this and that and so on. So there's definitely more attached to it than just like this is about cattle, right? Um, because cattle meant wealth, like the way that you would um, uh, uh, count your wealth in this um, medieval Viking age Scandinavian context would definitely be like how many heads of cattle do you have? So you could, I think you could uh, be relatively sure that it would be more of an expanded meaning than just the simple concrete, this means cattle and that's that. Okay. Yeah. I think I was just trying to distinguish whether it's got like a spiritual meaning because you see runes so often linked to such... Especially in, like I say, going back to these Facebook groups that you you see all the time, so many people attached to spiritual meanings and and magic. I just wasn't sure whether there was any evidence that these had kind of like a deeper spiritual meaning, or if it was just a case of they mean they mean the words that they kind of link to, and it was almost a shorter way of 
you know, rather than writing the word cattle, you just use the rune to represent cattle. Yeah, so we we see we see things that indicate both. Uh, sometimes the 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 rune itself can just stand for the word that it represents, but you also see several runic inscriptions where um, different runes are being used in some magical sense. You know, you have a sequence where the uh, person who carved it like writes the same rune multiple times, and that definitely, most certainly, has some kind of magical meaning to that person who is doing that. So I would say, yeah, you you should you can sort of legitimately say that there is that there is some kind of like magical sense to to them as just simple symbols that are being put in different contexts but it's the evidence that we have uh, from those earlier periods is not as expansive as we know it today most of it uh, most of the stuff that people um, tend to think they know about runes and their meanings today comes from books from the 19th century, uh, 20th century, and so on. So, so, so what you could say, I mean, that's not to say that that is, you know, any less legitimate than whatever somebody did uh, 1500 years ago. Uh, you could say that, you know, it's an evolving tradition where new things have become added to it and people are now using runes as magical symbols in, in a much more expanded way than, than we can, um, uh, you know, that the, the historical accounts will testify to. So, so basically, once again, I'm not getting a, not getting a solid answer. You're not getting a yes or no answer. You're getting <laughs> an answer that is, this is complicated. We're, we're, yeah, we're going to have to start releasing It's Complicated t-shirts, you know that. We definitely should, yes. <laughs> Just is complicated the Nordic mythology podcast. Yeah, but you know the thing is also I don't want to take away from the the meaning that it, that, that these symbols have to people today. Um, it's very easy for a scholar to sit down and be like, oh yeah, we don't have any historical evidence of what you're doing, so you're wrong. And I don't I don't think that that's a legitimate way to deal with the way that people relate to these things today. That's it. To be honest, I think people. Looking at the reviews we've been getting and the comments we've been receiving, it seems like people appreciate that that's the the road that we take, and especially the road that you take with. I mean, you you lead the dance with all these conversations, and it's it. You know, it's, I'm just a, a partner to ask silly questions, so people appreciate how you how not not vague you look at it, but you're not set on this is this is a way you you're happy to say that you're unsure and that you don't know. And people really do seem to be appreciating that. And obviously, in the instances that you do know, you say, this is what we know. But this, maybe we don't know. And, and you're leaving it up to people to, to decide. And I think that's a nice way to be. And for once, I think this day and age, people get so hung up on almost speaking to audiences as if they're, as if they're stupid. You see, in, in modern day movies, so easy. They're so scared to make a, a movie that makes that makes people think that they kind of like spoon feed you and hopefully with with how we're doing things and especially with the way how you you do things that you're leaving it more open and you're allowing people to think for themselves and go okay well i know we know this much so this is what i think and that might be completely different to somebody else who listens to the podcast and how they think but at the end of the day we don't know so we're all entitled to to our own opinions based on what we do know yeah, exactly. And you know what? I trust people to be able to make their own uh, informed choices on all of these things. And that's also why 
I, uh, I, I, I would rather, you know, uh, talking these more broad terms and, and say, well, we don't know exactly anything about this or the amount of knowledge we have available to us is, is limited. So go make up your own mind and use it the way that you want to. Um, as Vicky, uh, 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 one of the organizers of the Midgardsblot Festival in, in Norway said, just don't be an ass. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to live your life in in general. If if you know, look at your actions. If you think you're being an ass, then don't do it. Yeah, exactly. And and if somebody points out, dude, that you're being an ass right now, then make <laughs> maybe take that into account. <laughs> exactly. I think that's something we all should. That's the next T-shirt after uh, it's complicated. Just don't be an ass. <laughs> it's complicated. Don't be an ass. Yeah, I love <laughs> that's it. That's it. That can go on the back. Yeah. <laughs> So speaking to this, I mean, um, I think you're right. Nowadays, uh, people tend to uh, dumb it down when they present knowledge to to the general audience uh, for various reasons. I, I encounter this myself in different ways, um, and and I think I think it's that's that's not a, a good way to go about it, and because. You know, we don't, as human beings, we don't need to have answers to everything. And we don't need to have clear answers to everything. And we also don't necessarily need everything to be neatly packaged in, in a way so that it fits perfectly with our current worldview. Um, I think it's, there's, some, there's a lot of value in things um, being, being a little more complicated so that you... It can also incorporate into your modern worldview that hey, wait a minute, um, you know some things we might never actually get a, a clear uh, sense of, and that's okay. I can live with that uncertainty. Not everything has to be, <laughs> you yeah. know, perfectly designed for my world, right? That's it. I think I think part of it is it, it's it's both both parties are guilty the the, the content the content creators and the audience because audiences are looking for neat, you know. Everybody wants a solid answer. When I ask you questions, obviously, I'm hoping for a solid answer so I can say, yes, this is what happened. So I think so. then sometimes content creators will lean towards that and they want to give people the solid answers because maybe it gets more clicks or more likes. So it just feeds into that cycle of... Yeah, but ultimately, you know what? People like me are responsible for that. We We scholars... And content creators of different kinds. We are the ones who have put it out there as if that is uh, the way the world needs to work, right? And I see this in, in my own line of work all the time. Uh, people are trying to make sense out of it, all kinds of little tiny details that you find, for instance, in, in the stories about the Nordic gods, the, the Eddic poetry. And, you know, sometimes you also just have to accept that, hey... Maybe maybe the people back then were, you know, uh, fine with the idea of like a mystery, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's part of it too. You know, the, the world becomes a little more magical when, when there's mysteries and things that we, we can't really know uh, present, right? Well, next time you're at the Scholarly Cult Club meeting... You can have a word. You can have a word with the the other professors and just say, you know, it's okay to leave things a little bit more open ended. Yeah, yeah, I do that sometimes. And then they tell me to leave. <laughs> That's it. Right. Let's let's jump on to the the main topic of 
of today's podcast. As obviously with the last episode we did Ragnar, uh, we're going to go carry on down that route for the next couple of episodes and look at the main characters from the the very popular TV show and hopefully bring some facts to the facts to light so we so people have more of an understanding who these people really were and how they fit into Norse mythology. And again, we're not trying to take away from the show. The show is its own thing in its own right. It's made its own stories. And you're entitled to like both. Don't feel that you have to, you know, anything that we say, we're not we're not trying to discredit the show. We both enjoy it. So let's, yeah, let's just jump into to Lagatha and let's let's see where we go. Let's let's find out the the, the facts and se- try to separate the fact from the fiction. It's something I know a little bit about, but not not too much. So, let's. Where where do you want to start? Do you want to start maybe by looking at? Because let look. Let's start with the main question that I want to know is whether Lagatha was a. Is there any evidence she was a real person? Yeah. Okay. So. The just uh, just just to start off with, where does her story come from? She so the story of Lagatha is from Saxo's Gesta Danorum, the history of the Danish uh, uh, people, um, or the deeds of the Danish people, as it is called in Latin. And uh, it's written in the late 1100s, early 1200s. I think the last, the last possible date that Saxo could have been writing this was in, in, in 1208, to be exact. And Saxo... Uh, is actually one of our main sources and an untapped source in many ways to Nordic mythology. He gives us so much knowledge on Nordic mythology, Viking history, and so on, and he has never really received the same level of, of recognition in neither in scholarship or in popular culture as uh, Snorri Sturluson, the saga literature, um, Eric poetry, and so on. And for good reasons, because uh, it is very easy to see exactly how Saxo um, messes with his sources in so many ways. <laughs> and he also that's, writes... That's never a good start. No, that's never a good start, right? And he also writes in Latin, uh, as opposed to, for instance, Snorri Sturluson, when he writes the Edda and uh, the story about the Nordic gods, I mean, he writes in uh, his own uh, Icelandic language at the time. So this is also one of the reasons that Saxo has been sort of more on the side of things. But, um, but he is actually giving us a lot of interesting details and differences um, when he gives us descriptions of a lot of historical events in, in the Viking Age and so on. And it's, of course, up to scholars to figure out what's, what's real and what's not and where is he sort of creating things. This section where he writes about Lagatha, he's definitely creating things. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, first of all, we, last time we talked about is... Is Ragnar a Norwegian king, Danish king, Swedish king? How how does all of this work, right? And you know, part of this confusion, of course, comes from Saxo, who is tying Ragnar into Denmark in particular. This is, of course, because his whole perspective of, on things is that Denmark is the coolest place, and we don't like the Germans. That's that's really all he wanted to say. He spent like. Uh, 12 books saying that. <laughs> but that's, that's a typical historian of his time, right? The other historians have other perspectives 
Um, if you read the sagas of the Norwegian kings that were written in Iceland, their whole perspective is that, oh, the Norwegian kings are cool um, because we are Icelandic chieftains who want to hang out with the Norwegian kings, right? There you go. So uh, that's a typical agenda thing that we find in, in history writing. But um, if we go to the story itself, so Ragnar goes to Norway and, um, and encounters uh, Lagertha up there. So the, what has happened in Norway is that the uh, evil Swedish king Frö has conquered uh, this land where um, Lagertha is. And um, then he has uh, in, enslaved the, the king's family and he has basically forced the women there to, to go to brothels and, and be prostitutes. And in response to this, a lot of the women are then dressing as men and pretending to be men. And there are, there are several things happening here that are the undercurrent for Saxo's weird story. First of all, Frö is a sort of, um, what, what in scholarly terms are called, euhemorized Nordic god. Uh, euhemorized means that they have turned him into, uh, the author has turned him into a person, a man, a, an ancient king. So this means, one, Frö never existed as an actual king, um, his name means Freyr, so he's the god of fertility, hence why Saxo is creating the story about this god of fertility um, enslaving women to work in brothels. Uh, because Sax Saxo is a Christian and he has the perspective on the Nordic gods that they were demons or evil sorcerers uh, that lived back in the day and made people do all, all of these morally deviant things. And so, sorry, sorry to interrupt. So can we just assume that this story is entirely fictional? 100% fictional. Okay. Just but, want to kind of clear that up from, from my own. Yeah. And for anybody listening that we're, you know, we're looking at a completely piece of, you know, a work of fiction. Yes. It is a work of fiction based off of some real elements. For instance, okay. Freud. The existence of Freyr as a deity is well established, right? His connection to fertility was well established. And when we go to uh, Adam of Bremen's description of the temple in Uppsala, which ha was written, you know, a little over 100 years before Saxo. Saxo, by the way, knew uh, parts of that story, in a sense, at least. Um, he, he would have been familiar with the descriptions of this temple. Adam of Bremen says that in this temple... Uh, we have the god Freyr represented with a giant penis. And yeah, so, so that's, the, that's his attribute. That's the thing that connects him to fertility. That's, I would say that's handy if you're the god of fertility, isn't it? It, it is, right? <laughs> very handy, I guess. And, <laughs> and this is a very common phenomenon in pre-Christian Europe. There's, there, dude, you have no idea how many depictions of penises there, there were on things <laughs> everywhere. Still in the landscape uh, uh, in Sweden and Norway, you can find these uh, stone uh, phallic shapes uh, on you know, people's farms. 
Have you have you ever seen the one? I can't, I can't, I'm not sure if it's in Cornwall or it's around that area in the south of of England. And there is a huge giant on the side of a a field, and I'm talking it must be thirty foot. And it's yeah. I don't know how it's I've seen the grass, and obviously somehow they've they've marked out this huge giant with a giant penis, and it's just like obviously. You wouldn't have that today. It just shows how much of a different time it was, and I'm guessing there wasn't any embarrassment about it back then. It wasn't the it wasn't seen as what it is now. No, absolutely not. It, 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 back then, you know, uh, uh, an erect penis meant a lot of different things. I mean, even Roman soldiers would carry little uh, penises um, as necklaces. This podcast has not gone where I thought it was going to do. <laughs> no, no, we're going down a, a, a certain route here. We might have to uh, mark this one with explicit content. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, it, it, the Roman soldiers would uh, carry these because they they thought that you know carrying a little penis talisman would give them more strength and and be, make them better warriors. So there's there's a lot of you know things in which this. Uh, comes together in this pre-Christian culture or these pre-Christian cultures, um, where where these were like simple uh, symbols of power, manlyhood, and so on, and that's of course what is also tied to this king. But Saxo, as a Christian, doesn't like this, so he has created this uh, little lame story about how uh, Fleur uh, is responsible for uh, promiscuity and and all of these things that uh, you as a good Christian don't like, right? And it is in that setting then that, that uh, Lagatha um, it comes into existence. Um, so, so what Saxo is doing here is that he's explaining why women would wear male clothing and act like men as warriors and so on, because that does not fit with his worldview either, right? The idea of a woman for this Christian clerk is not somebody who fights battles. So, so that's part of that. Could and, that, yeah, could could that almost lean towards the fact that maybe he's seen that in this culture women are wearing male clothes and fighting, which would maybe lean towards the idea of having fem- some female fighters. That he's he's looked at it from a Christian standpoint and gone, I need to to somehow explain this, or is it maybe just something he's he's thought up? So, so based on what we know archaeologically nowadays, um, harkening back to our, our first episode on, on shield maidens, um, I mean, we know they existed. So Saxo probably also knew that they existed. At least he has read about them. I don't think that he himself would have seen or encountered any because we're at a point now where um, most of Scandinavia is Christian and things have changed dramatically since the Viking Age. So female warriors are probably not a thing any longer, but a guy like Saxo is not that far removed in time from when they were. And so what we know as historians, we know that this is a long-standing trope in European literature going all the way back to the Greeks and the Amazons, right? This idea that there are communities where women are in charge, uh, not men. And this is probably um, not necessarily the case, but probably something that that has been sort of been used in the literature 
to to have the antithesis to to the what these writers and historians perceive as the real world order. Like to them, the real world order is a, a, a community that is ruled by men, right? And so the antithesis to this is a community ruled by women. Now, what might actually be the historical background for all of this is a scenario where we have different tribes in Europe where both men and women partake in battle and do things that there might not be this very strict um, boundaries between the roles that you can take in society depending on gender. This at least would be what the archaeological evidence suggests when it comes to shield maidens in Scandinavia. Some women could actually take the role of a, a traditional man role, right? So that's really what's happening here. And these, these clerks like Saxo, Adam of Bremen, they're trying to fig uh, figure out how to deal with that. Because it is, it, since it is there in the literature, it must have been common knowledge that that existed at some point. And they have to explain it from their Christian worldview, where a woman being a fighter and taking on roles of a man is not really possible. You see how this works? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, so we're going to circle back to Lagatha not wanting to go to the to the brothel, I'm assuming. Yes, exactly. So Ragnar um, comes into all of this and um, Saxo actually describes Lagatha as a Amazon. So he that shows his familiarity with the Greek Latin literature, right? And um, Ragnar comes into the picture and uh, then fights off this evil king, uh, Frö, right? And she partakes in this battle and everybody realizes that she's an awesome warrior uh, who, can, who can do the same things as a man. And this um, then entices Ragnar. He becomes uh, fascinated with her and wants to marry her. And she says, well, you um, can come to my house. And then, <laughs> <laughs> then uh, she's tied a bear and a giant dog or wolf uh, um, outside of her, her house. And, and Ragnar has to slay them. And he, he, he stabs the bear with a spear and he chokes the, the dog. And then eventually manages to marry her. And she's testing him. Yeah, she tested him, right? And Some things never change, eh? Some things never change at all. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a typical typical scenario we see so often in the saga literature and, and, and these types of literature. Um, you know, if you want to woo a woman, she will test you in some way or another where you have to show your, your strength as a warrior, your cunning, your intelligence, and so on, which is actually not that bad of a thing, if you ask me. <laughs> no, especially not back... Back in a time where war and, and brutality and fighting is such an important role. And obviously, just yeah, being able to look after yourself and being able to look after your what belongs to you, your family, and those who are important to you. So it's not it's not odd that she would test him in this way as a show of not not necessarily masculinity, but a show of a show of strength, a show of dominance. You've been able to, you know, it's no easy feat to overcome a bear and a wolf. Exactly, and and you know it's it, it makes perfect sense, right? Because if you're, you like if you're looking for a husband, uh, you want to know that that husband can can you know 
provide a decent living in different ways. And providing a decent living back then um, entailed so much more than simply just uh, going to work. And well, it was it was it probably was a case of life and death. Exactly. It was a, it, it, that that's how how brutal the world was. That if, if you couldn't, I mean, it, it. I feel like we're on we're almost kind of like tiptoeing around because of the times that we live in now. But it was it was a time where if your I guess if your man couldn't provide for you, your family could starve to death. If you know if the if the crops weren't weren't sowed and the food wasn't available, it was a case where you starved to death and you died. Yes. And that's how that's how cutthroat it was. So being able to provide and prove that you can provide for your family was such an important role. Exactly. And those are some of the lessons that these stories give us, right? And uh, to give you another example of how this works uh, on on the other end of the spectrum, uh, when Ragnar encounters Krauka, um, we have this similar situation where she is tested, right? He tells her to meet him um, not in the company of a person, but not alone, um, dre- uh, not dressed, but not uh, undressed, and uh, not on a full stomach, but not fasting either. And she shows up um, wearing a um, net, a fishing net, in the company of a dog uh, chewing on an onion. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> well, if that's what he's into. <laughs> yeah, if that's what he's into. Yeah. <laughs> that's his thing. Who are we to judge? Who are we to judge? So we've got up where where we got up to. I'm just trying to keep it in like a, a linear line so we can at least try and understand it the best we can. So we've got we've got up to to obviously Lagatha testing Ragnar. Ragnar is now passed the test. He's killed the bear, killed the wolf, married his dream woman. Yes. So so he uh, you know passed the test. Then they marry. And they have uh, four children, two sons and two daughters. And they're not really that important. Um, the daughters don't even have names. <laughs> but, uh, but then he goes back to Denmark uh, um, because there's civil war. And he is still kind of pissed off that Lagatha had him uh, fight a bear and all that stuff. So he actually divorces her and then marries... Uh, Thora in uh, um, in Sweden. She's the daughter of the Swedish king Herod, and um, and then then Lagatha's role dwindles. But she still shows up once um, he needs her help, um, and sends something like 120 ships, I think it is, uh, to help him because she still loves him. So. Um, that's really that's really her role in the story. She she's she's some um, uh, she's a she's a female uh, warrior up there in Norway in what is to Saxo somewhat distant, and um, he seems to more be interested in explaining aspects of um, fertility rituals that connect to the god Freyr. And the idea that uh, women can uh, wear male clothes and be shield maidens and, and all that stuff. Rather than her having a, a particularly important role in the whole story that has to do with Ragnar. So what this comes down to is actually more the uh, Saxo's attempt 
to re represent historical knowledge that is still circulating in Scandinavia about the pre-Christian religion and the pre-Christian culture that needs to be weeded out for a Christian like him. Okay, so the show has basically taken what is effectively a side character and then just developed them into a full character and, and obviously just to suit their, their their story and how and how they want to do things. Exactly. And and um, also uh, keep in mind that Saxo then later on has Lagatha usurping her role um, in, in, in this uh, Norwegian area. Because in effect, what this means in the mind of a guy like Saxo is that when Ragnar marries Lagatha, he is the legitimate ruler of this area in Norway. And so he's supposed to be the king, but then she acts like a king. And then, then it turns into a discord between them afterwards because um, to, to Saxo, obviously, in his mind, Ragnar is then some kind of ruler over Norway. And that's also how this Danish clerk tries to represent um, a situation where, where, where the Danes should be rightful owners of Norway, right? That's also part of his little gig. So yeah, um, this has led, of course, scholars to believe that uh, Lagatha um, is not a real figure, that she's, she never was a historical figure. And there is, there is a lot of things to suggest that, I mean, if there is a historical figure behind her somewhere, um, that's very vague. And, and yeah, she's more of a side character than, than an actual person um, doing a lot of um, things and having an, a prominent role in the whole story of Ragnar. That's, of course, because to Saxo, all of this is about Ragnar, right? Yeah, so he's almost using her to tie up a few loose ends and explain, explain some things that people might find a little bit odd. Yes, and, and her name, uh, Lagatha, is sort of the uh, English version of Saxo's Latin version of the Nordic name Hladgerder. So um, there's also, you know, three steps of, uh, of linguistic interpretation of the name in and of itself there. Um, and I'm very sure that if you went back to the Viking Age and you call somebody Lagatha, everybody would be like, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> but there's, okay. there's more to it. There is also the possibility here that behind this person of Lagatha is actually is some kind of guardian goddess of 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 a area in Western Norway. That maybe links onto what I was going to ask, and that was that I've seen her described as a Valkyrie in different areas and different, which would give her that kind of godlike persona so i'm glad you're also going to cover that and me and tell me i'm wrong if if i am whilst you're going yeah so so i'm not going to tell you that you're wrong i'm going to tell you that it's complicated as usual <laughs> <laughs> so should have seen that coming right so the thing about all of this and what we have to realize when we are reading these stories is that mythology always plays a role right so uh, going back to what I talked about with euhemerism. So euhemerism is this uh, literary trick, basically, that all of these uh, authors 
are using in this period of time. They take myths and gods and then they turn them into stories about humans, right? So that's also why when you read the beginning of uh, the, the sagas of the kings of Norway, the Inglinga saga, we have this weird story about Odin and the Aesir, so the Nordic gods, basically migrating from Asia into Scandinavia and then becoming kings there and dying, right? This is euhemerization at its best. This is when an author takes knowledge of the Nordic gods and then turns them into humans and creates like this migration story that is utter nonsense, but makes perfect sense to him in this period of time. And uh, this might also be part of what is happening with the figure Hladger. Um She might be uh, sort of a iteration, if you could call it that, sort of a, a, a an expression of a um, guardian spirit that has been venerated in probably multiple places in, in Norway and elsewhere too, uh, per perhaps not under the same name. And this bears into this uh, figure called Thorgerder, Helgabruder. So Thorgerd, um, the bride of Helgi, um, who appears in the saga of the Yums Vikings, in Njal saga, and uh, in other texts as well, Feiring a Saga, the story of, uh, of the Faroe Islands. And um, she's, she's sort of a venerated deity. Um, the, the most dramatic uh, story about her is uh, when the Jomsvikings, um, this Viking collective that has a little castle, uh, probably on sort of, probably somewhere around the North Polish or North uh, uh, German coast in the Baltic Sea, um, they go and invade Norway. And um, we have here Earl Håkon, who then sacrifices his son to her to, to bring a, a, a blizzard over the whole uh, army that is approaching. And that, that way he then gets uh, favorable weather. And what we can see here is that that story is, of course, some kind of like uh, semi-biblical version of Abraham sacrificing um, or being supposed to sacrifice his son to God. But then, of course, in the biblical story, he he's prevented by God from doing this. But, uh, but here we're dealing with pagans, and uh, to these Christian authors, pagans are notorious uh, sacrifices of humans, so therefore it makes perfect sense that they would do that kind of stuff. And that uh, that's basically sort of her role as some sort of like demonic female deity that uh, these, uh, um, uh, well, unbelievers, pagans, heretics, sacrifice uh, children to and so on. So ultimately, what are we dealing with here? Well, we're dealing with Scandinavian authors a couple of hundred years after uh, Christianization trying to reconcile aspects of the Scandinavian pre-Christian culture and its past with their Christian perspective on the world. And um, somewhere, deep down, underneath all these layers, is some kernel of historical truth, right? And that could, for instance, be that, you know, they, they worshipped different kinds of deities. Some of them were female, some were not. And 
in this sort of semi-animistic worldview could materialize as, as female warriors as well. And maybe they, uh, we even have female warriors who would, um, you know, uh, have a closer personal spiritual relationship to a female deity. Um, that would explain perhaps why Freya takes half of the slain warriors, according to Nordic mythology. Um, that could sort of like be a a, a reminiscent aspect of, of of maybe female warriors had their own uh, quote unquote Valhurt to go to. Um, we, we we really can't know, but we can of course theorize um, extensively on the subject. Would it be this is something that's just come to my head now, and it it relates a little bit to this, but also on a whole level what we talk about. Would it be possible that? I mean, Scandinavia is a big place. There would be diff- a lot of different sort of communities. Is it possible that one community could believe in in maybe like a, a, a goddess or, or, or a deity like Lagatha, but another one doesn't? But it just so happens that this one has been passed through and written down and remembered, whereas it's not necessarily a thing that everybody believes in. But on a small, you know, to a small group of people or at least a community, then. It does, because I imagine the the communication between communities isn't always that great. You you know maybe the major things get discussed, but not not small stuff. Yeah, no. So so yeah, that would be the scenario, right? We should consider at least like four or five different factors in in terms of like uh, differences in in religion in in Scandinavia at the time. We have geographical differences we have um maybe local cultural differences we have psychological differences right cognitive differences there's a difference between how you think about religion depending on where you are in the social ladder of society and some people are you know psychologically more prone to want to you know, believe in deities and 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 have a lot of rituals and do a lot of rituals. Other peoples are less so. So there's a lot of variation that happens over a long period of time. And you could perhaps compare this a little bit to, you know, the whole Indian uh, subcontinent, right? Uh, we have texts that can tell us there are these named deities and so on. But these named deities take different forms depending on the kind of community that you're in. Uh, what kind of village you're visiting, go to a village far up in the, uh, the Nepalese mountains and the, uh, the name of the deity will be very different. Uh, the, maybe the uh, statue of the deity will be uh, very different from what you can see farther south or down on the plains or in the, in, in the forests and so on. Um, but it's considered the same deity and uh, their own version of it and maybe has an entirely different name and so on and so forth, right? So what, you know, what we see Hindu theologians uh, doing here in, in their primary texts is to try to reconcile these differences and similarities and, and say, well, this is, you know, an, a, an avatar of a certain spirit, right? Um, I don't think the Scandinavians would have done the same thing because they were never as, uh, as you know, civilized, basically, as... <laughs> as the Indian subcontinent, but but they would probably you could probably expect people to reason the same way and say, oh, 
uh, over there they worship this deity, and that is a that deity is very similar to this deity that we worship here. So it might be the same, but they might have had different names for it. They might have had different stories for it as well. And some of these stories were similar and some of them weren't and so on and so forth. What we have right now is sort of like the watered down <laughs> version of, of, of a multitude of possibilities that existed in pre-Christian Scandinavia. That's really the unfortunate thing here. Um, I'm sure that we would, if, if we were able to go back to to say the 900s or the 800s in Scandinavia, what we would see is like this multitude of deities and spirits and and ways of venerating them. And in some places people would see eye to eye, in other places they won't. And you could probably also find, you know, um, inter-religious conflicts where, you know, the a veneration of a certain deity was uh, attacked by the, the people who venerated another one and so on. There are some things in the saga literature, for instance, that indicate that this actually happened in Iceland, where you have different cults for different you know, deities competing and also violently competing. So, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a very it's a rich tapestry. <laughs> I think the closest thing I can think to relate to is is with Christianity and the different sects you get beneath the umbrella of Christianity. So you get like Catholicism and Methodists. I think Mormons fall in there as well. You know, there's there's a whole bunch of of what you would class as Christians, but they've all taken. They you know they all at the heart believe in the same thing, but they've taken God at some point in history gone a, a slightly different route, and they believe in ultimately the same thing but it's a little bit different here and then and you know, another group has gone aside a different direction and they believe so you know they're all under the same umbrella of of being christianity but they all do differ in their own little ways and i guess that's the same thing that we could have in scandinavia at that time you know they they do believe in these 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 pillar gods and the main sagas and the main stories and the main creation and the end of the world but once it comes down to the smaller details these different cultures can put their own spin on it, I guess. Yes, I think you're totally right about that. Uh, um, so glad you didn't just say no. <laughs> no, 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 actually the opposite here. Um, yeah, I think, you're, I think you're right. I think at least in the, in the sense that the, the, the structure would be similar. The difference is, of course, here that we're dealing with a, um, a culture that doesn't have like, you know, a single text, a dogma. So, so, so that, of course, gives us a little bit of a difference between these Christian sects and, and whatever existed back then. But you're totally right, though. It's, it's the same pattern, right? Because what do you have when you have some kind of, um, you know, development over an extended period of time? Well, people start, you know, getting creative about their religion. And uh, that's always how it's going to work. You know, back uh, 200 years ago, you know, the different churches in, in, in Europe tried to weed that out. You know, we all know the Spanish Inquisition, right? And <laughs> and the, the Spanish Inquisition was, was just the Spanish Inquisition. There was Inquisitions everywhere else, too. And they were, of course, in charge of making sure that people all believed the same thing. And um, that's ultimately, if you, don't, if you don't have that, if you don't have these 
uh, uh, institutions to weed that out, people are going to start believing a lot of different things, which you're also seeing now in a Christian context in modern day um, um, uh, the world, basically, right? We have Christians who believe in so many different things and do Christianity in so many different ways, right? Because that's how human functions. Yeah, I think it's important to remember as well that these traditions and the sagas and the stories, they're all passed down verbally. It's not written down. And like you say, there isn't a, a text that says this is this. So I know when I'm telling a story, I can tell a story to five different peoples that the underlying facts are going to be the same in the story. It's going to have, probably have the same beginning, the same end, and, and the key parts are going to be the same. But there's going to be parts of it that change and alter and I, I might adapt, I might add things, I might forget what happened, so I just kind of make it up. And I guess that will have happened. People aren't these these perfect machines that remember everything. So if you are telling this story to a group of people, you almost do put your own spin on it, add your own theatrics to it, add a little bit. And then obviously those people that have listened will will hear your version and they will pass it on to people. And it you know it's, it soon do, it doesn't take that many generations before things can change quite a little bit depending on what you've heard. Exactly, exactly. Especially in societies that don't have the same means of communication as we have today. Today, an idea can spread so fast and people can latch onto it so easily, right? Uh, through our global network of communication. That, back then, would take centuries. Um, but the, and, and also adding to that, because uh, you're totally right, uh, adding to that is also the fact that if we want to get deep about, you know, uh, neurological things... As human beings, none of us are capable of seeing uh, the real world. <laughs> there, there's always a filter that that is part of filtering the real world, which also then in like these smaller details means that we're going to re, uh, re represent what we have heard and seen differently, always, right? So ultimately, it's inevitable that um, even even if you have like a book that is considered like the book. Um, Islam would be a good example of this, right? Um, we have a strong idea in Islam that, well, the book is, is, is the true word. But then, you know, you see different kinds of Islam emerging across uh, the Islamic world at different and points and so on. And it's wildly different as well. It's not, it's not like there's just, you know, a little... A little difference. You're talking, you know, complete extremism on one side and then complete peaceful options on the other. Mm -hmm. So, and that's when you've got a physical text to look at that says, you know, the words are there and people still inter interpret them their own way. So I guess if you're sat around a fire and, you know, been told a story, you, everybody hears things differently. Every, everybody interprets it differently, takes it differently. They have their own experiences in life that allows them to take things, interpret things differently. So ultimately what you come out with could be completely different to the person sat next to you. Yep, absolutely. And I mean, that's what I, as a teacher, sometimes realize with my students. <laughs> like, oh, you picked up on this and you picked up on that and uh, you didn't pick Did up on that. Did you even listen? <laughs> you know, and, and that's just how it goes, you know. And uh, <laughs> So yeah, that, that also tells you a little bit about this notion that something that uh, needs to be a dogma or canon, right? I mean, it's not really possible to have that ultimately. You know, in some ways, yeah, sure, we can we can try to make sure that everybody's have uh, have the same knowledge and the same basis for for uh, understanding and uh, you know going in the same direction. But at some point, it, it's not going to work, 
Because <laughs> there's always going to be someone out there who does something differently. Well, that's it. And, and people do often look to be different. They want to find a way to stand out. You, know, you want to stand out from the crowd, whether it's peacocking for female attention or, you know, you just want to be different. It, it, it's human nature almost. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's been... Uh, both as a human and as a teacher, I, I applaud that. You know, I, I, I like to see those differences rather than everybody just doing the same thing. The world would be a boring place if we were all the same. Right? <laughs> so let's let's wrap up Lagatha and obviously the very little we know about it with, with one of the, the questions from that came from Instagram. And this, this comes from Shelley and she asks, is it known how Lagatha died? Now, she's tied that into the show, asking whether it's one of the sons of Ragnar that, that kills her. I'm assuming that that's not going to play a part as we have, have obviously discovered through the episode that there is no link really between any of the sons of Ragnar and her. So it's more about just do we know how she died? Do we know what happens to her? No, I mean, so so she ends up uh, usurping and actually, uh, I have to admit, I can't remember if Saxo... Uh, um, it describes her death. So, um, but I, I think I think actually um, it, it ends up with the Ragnar um, ousting her somehow. But uh, this is where this is the extent of my knowledge. So it's, yeah, so it's, I mean, if, if if you don't know, it's certainly not an important enough matter that you know really it makes it makes a big imprint on on what we know and. You know, it's not the the be all and end all, I guess. No, no. I mean, the the more important aspects of her story is is, um, is I think is Saxo's need to tell these little aspects of like pre-Christian religion and and, and culture, and then fit them nicely into uh, the role of this one character in this story. Um, simply because he he needs to um, uh, tell us exactly how evil the pre-Christian deities were. were. Uh, how how much uh, claim to a Norwegian throne that the Danish king might have, and all of that stuff. That's really what it's all about. So, yeah, um, she's ultimately not that important. I, I will say, though, that I, I feel like, you know, the creators of the Viking sh- show, they got some really awesome stuff out of that character and, and managed to really fashion a, a good, relatable character. I mean, all the memes about her death really say that right <laughs> yeah no absolutely she she's by far one of the one of my favorite characters from the show and i think uh, same with many people that's why obviously a lot of people were upset when she died she had the big love story with ragnar and mm-hmm. i think she was a you know she was a brilliant character and it was portrayed very very well by the the very beautiful Catherine winnick yeah <laughs> and also you know the way that um uh, in the story, we get all of these other aspects from other kinds of sources, archaeological sources, other written sources, and so on, mixed in. I, I think that's one of the, the brilliant aspects of the show. So what, what they have managed to do here is to cram as much information about the Viking Age into a fiction. That's really what they've done here. So, for instance, okay, so... Last time you weren't particularly happy about her uh, her funeral, right? And I, I agree with that. But, you know, on the other hand, what they managed to do here was to show sort of a representation of the Oseberg burial, if, if nothing else, right? So they managed to, uh, to cram 
all of that archaeological information into that single scene. That's pretty cool, right? Like that that, that almost frustrated me more because they because they take the, they'd obviously taken the time and obviously knew about it, they'd taken the time to look at it. So the fact that they'd gone through that and I was like, oh, it's gonna be so cool, they're gonna do it how it was how it was actually done. And then he's like, oh no, we'll just burn it. And that almost frustrated me even more than just doing something completely different. No, I agree. Um, uh, you know, they, they build up this nice, uh, great scene and then they burn the whole thing down. But uh, I think that's also, we're dealing with an editorial decision here. The assumption here is that uh, Vikings burned ships with, you know, people in them. Where do we get that from? Well, we get it from the story about Baldur's death. Uh, which is essentially the only one uh, out there that, that describes a funeral ritual in this manner, except for Tacitus, no, not Tacitus, um, except for Ibn Fadlan, who also gives us this description of the chieftain's burial, um, where everything is burnt, right? And and we can, of course, see that there there's a var- variations going on. I mean, some, uh, thankfully, they decided not to burn all of these ships. Some of them were buried in the ground instead so that we could find them later on and get awesome insight into the culture that existed at the time. But, you know, it, it, I think it makes sense in, in terms of the narrative to, to decide to burn the thing down. It's it's easy to criticise as well. I mean, we don't know the ins and outs of, of TV production. It could just be wildly expensive to, to bury it, which I imagine it probably would be. Uh, than it is just to set it on fire and push it into the water. It, it, it probably is just... They probably would have liked to have done it historically accurately, but maybe it just wasn't within the budget or it wasn't possible. Yeah. So maybe I'm just being a little bit harsh. <laughs> well, I mean, on the other hand, you're a fan of the show, so so, so your, your reactions to the, these choices are also valuable, I think, to, to them, hopefully. I mean, I, I think ultimately the show is a good thing. I think it's brought so many people to this culture. You know, it's easy to sit and criticise. I think we said this last episode. It's easy to, to be there and sit and say, well, this is wrong, this is wrong, they're not wearing the right clothes. But hopefully people will... Will watch the show, get in, you know, find this interesting, want to learn more, find our podcast. Fingers crossed, and then you know, any more eyes on this is better. And whether they come here through, you know, a TV show that's not historic accurate, well, they can learn it down, you know, down the line when when they hear things like this, they read other things, they read the source material, then they're going to pick up what is real. But the the main thing is getting people interested in the viking age and in norse mythology and that's what they've done they the, the people they must have brought must be countless yeah yeah no i agree i agree that's that that's a very noble pursuit in and of itself making people interested in this and giving them a sense of what what it what it was about it, what it might have been and ultimately also just telling good stories and as somebody who writes uh, things like these uh, for a uh, you know a modern audience, it, I can tell you it's not easy because um, I just finished the book manuscript for a children's book on Nordic mythology, right? And um, you know, aside from making the stories accessible to a modern young audience, uh, you also have to negotiate with editors on multiple levels. And, and their perspectives and views on all of this and so on. And ultimately, 
as the person who's writing, say, a story, a manuscript for for a, a, the Vikings TV show, you start up with one idea, and then it turns into something very different from what you started with uh, in the end. And you just have to be okay with that. You know, there's there's, there's nothing else to do about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people wanting to get a hold of that book when it comes out. I hope so. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, well, I think it's, it's a wonderful thing, especially for children, because... I mean, a lot of these, a lot of the myths and things, they're not the easiest to understand. They're not the easiest to understand for a full-grown adult, like you know, like myself. And even though I have some understanding in this in this world, some of them are still really hard to understand. So being able to 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 get that to children and to to simplify it enough to them that they understand, but also you know keep the, the keep the main things in there, I think it's going to be a wonderful a wonderful thing. And hopefully bring the next generation of people through. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, yeah. And, and like, it's not like I haven't had to take some leaps, you know, in terms of, you know, a, a combining stories or or giving um, giving basically different um, stories in certain cases, because you know, in some cases you just don't have enough material available. Because you know, say. Um, the story about Sif's golden hair, right? Um, we all know Thor's wife, Sif, has golden hair, and um, Loki cut that at some point. And that's really it, though. That's the amount of knowledge that's in there, <laughs> in, yeah. in the mythology. And there might have been a story about it at some point. But, you know, this we know it as, as like Sif's golden hair. This is, this is like a thing, right? That's because... You know, in in earlier times, the, this concept of her golden hair has been tied to like the fields and and all of that stuff, and that sort of became a staple of our of of our cultural knowledge about Nordic mythology. But when you go to the actual mythology, then you know it's it's just like three lines um, that oh, that leads into another story. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say that you commonly see that mixed in with the creation of Milner. That's, or at least that's how I've normally seen it. Is that that you you know you get that story and then that kind of that's the reason Loki goes to the to the dwarfs to have these things made and that's the way most people people see it. Um, I never realized it wasn't. Well, it is. It is. It, that does. That is exactly what it is. But but you you know since since there's been you know both scholarly interpretations happening and then popular. Um, interpretations happening on top of the scholarly interpretations. The idea of Sif's golden hair is sort of like uh, some emblematic aspect of this deity, right? And so, for instance, people sometimes expected, oh, this story, there's a story about that specifically. There's a story about her as a deity specifically. And there really isn't. There isn't enough material in, the, in Norse mythology to have a good story about her. Like if you wanted, if you wanted a good story about Sif, you'd have to make it up. I mean, and then you can do it on on you know basis of of various uh, things. Like you could uh, you you could take structures from other myths, for instance, and 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 then create a story. I'm not saying that I did that in the book, but but that's a, that's just a, like a good example of how how difficult it actually can be for us sometimes to um, you know accommodate the popular view. And what is actually represented in the material? 
yeah, I think you've got to you've got to find that happy balance, especially when it's coming to a children's book. It ultimately has to be entertaining. Because if it's not entertaining, they're not going to want to to read it. They're not going to want the you know the mums and the dads to read it to them on a night. And and again, it's almost the same as a show. You want it. It doesn't. Ha- you want to try and get as much fact in there as possible, but you also need to engage them so they want to learn more. And when they grow up, they can delve deeper into it. You know, they've got a long time to look into the the facts, but you may only have a short time to to really get them engaged into into Vikings and get them you know, on the path of, of wanting to learn more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So we'll take the next one. So we have, um, Lindsay Denny sent me a question, uh, that is about the cosmos. Actually, she asks if there are nine levels of Niflheim, uh, or if there are nine different worlds in the Viking cosmos, um, like what's the difference here? And, um, ultimately she asks, does that have anything to do with Dante's, nine levels of hell and um that is a good question (laughs) the answer is always it's complicated we go online right and we type in in google we type uh, viking cosmos or something like that and then we get all these representation of the night viking cosmos with nine levels and um maybe it's like this diagram where you have like a a little bubble over here that says Asgard and a bubble over here that says Midgard and all that stuff. All of these representations are interpretations. So the thing is that um, there are nine levels, according to Snorri Sturluson in Etta, there are nine levels of uh, hell and the lowest one is called Niflheim. That's actually how it works. So... um, that would mean then that he seems to be representing the underworld in Nordic mythology in the same way as Dante represents the Christian hell, right? With the different levels. And um, this is probably a medieval, or no, it's not probably, it's most certainly a medieval interpretation. Snorri Sturluson infers a very Christian, contemporary Christian idea into this uh, Scandinavian pre-Christian cosmos. It is probably not that likely that um, Vikings ever really thought of it in that way. They probably just had an underworld. Um, it could be, you know, populated by different deities and so on. But but there's probably not nine levels or seven levels or eleven levels or how many levels. And that, that brings me to this other thing of like the cosmos being separated in these like bubbles or realms. That's probably also not how they thought about the world. Um, these, these places that are mentioned in, in the, the mythology, that's probably more like, you know, you would find them out there around you in different mm-hmm. ways. Um, we're probably more talking about like a, a way of like referring to the realm of the dwarves, right? Yeah. Um, but the realm of the dwarves is ultimately in the ground or in rocks, in something like that, rather than some, you know, elusive place far away from us that we can't reach or, or something like that. That's at least not how it looks when you then go into stories, right? If you go to sagas and folk tales and so on, we find that, you know, you can move back and forth between at least some of these worlds. Obviously, because all this stuff is written in Christian times, you don't move into the world of the gods in particular, but you, you can go elsewhere. And so 
ultimately, yeah, we sh- we shouldn't be get too hung up on this idea of like a, a weird structure um, where these realms are separate. They exist all in the same plane at the same time and separate at the same time too. That, to be honest, that makes perfect sense to me. I've never really thought of it like that, but it makes a lot more sense than than having these different kind of bubbles floating around. Because you, you we've said this many times, but you've got to understand that they have such a limited understanding of what the world is, what our you know our cosmos now is. So, you know, when you see things like a volcano, or when you even when you get to like I guess to the top of Norway and everything is frozen and ice, like they would seem like ultimately different worlds. So it would, it's not hard to, to comprehend the, the, the Especially if somebody's visited there and come back and gone, okay, I've just gone up there and everything's covered in ice. So, and, and that gets spread around everybody that there's another world up there. And, you know, again, with a volcano, if you see that and you don't have an understanding of what it is, it's like, ugh. What is that? <laughs> exactly. And and another thing, when you go to that area up there that's full of ice and you find that you can't move any further in your ship, maybe because the, the sea is frozen over, then, you know, the next assumption is that, well, okay, so we can't go any further. This might be the end of the world, right? And then you start making uh, making theories about what is beyond that uh, <laughs> barrier up there, right? <laughs> Exactly. That that yeah, that makes perfect sense, and it, it makes more sense that they say that they live on this this one plane. I I I guess maybe I would assume that the gods would live above almost. It's possible. We we don't really. I only know. I only think of that as maybe like like the explanation for light and things like that would be you would see Thor in the sky. I I, I could be completely wrong there. Well, I mean, think about it uh, in terms of like Greek mythology, right? That we have the Mount Olympus, where the gods are said to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, maybe the Scandinavians thought similar things. Like, um, if we look at the place names in the Scandinavian landscape, you can see that there's like Thor's mountain and mm-hmm. Odin's lake and a lot of di- different other natural features associated with different gods. And if Odin has a lake, maybe he lives in that lake. Right, and I guess it's nice. Everybody wants the gods to be close to them, so it's easy to be. Oh, well, they live. You know, they. You've got to remember the, 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 these people. Their world is so small compared to ours now. You know, we can jump on a plane and travel around the world. We can speak to people on the other side of the world in seconds. Obviously, we're speaking to each other on different continents, but they didn't have that that luxury. They they probably only travelled within less than 100 miles of their house their entire life much less than that maybe you know 20 miles of their their home they don't really understand the the greater landscape so even if they had a mountain there was 100 miles away 200 miles away you could still see it but they're never going to go there so to them they could be like well the gods live there yeah no i mean that that's that's a really important thing to to, to keep in mind here like yeah uh, I mean, <laughs> I live up here in the Rocky Mountains, and I go hi- hiking on these mountains all the time. That's not something that these guys would necessarily have been doing, right? The people who move and go far are, you know, warriors and traders and so on, right? And they are a small part of society, and the vast majority of society is exactly what you're describing right there. 
just living in that particular space and they look at uh, look at these features around them the mountain that they might never go to um at least not on the top um is probably where the gods live and then they get stories from these people who are moving through their uh, area in different ways who come maybe once a year or maybe even just once in a lifetime or something like that and you know what if you're that guy if you're that far-traveled sailor or whatever, and you find yourself in a community of people who've never been anyplace, I can tell you there's going to be a lot of good stories <laughs> in that scenario, right? <laughs> yeah, and you're gonna, you can mix stuff up. You're going to be, I'm the guy who saw a dwarf. Yeah. It, I'm, I saw that, you know, I met Odin. Absolutely, and they did. I mean... You know, we're just, humans. Yeah, we're we humans. haven't changed that much. <laughs> no, just like go back to the to before the internet became a thing, and people would be making stuff up. Even now, when the internet is a thing, you know, <laughs> all this so-called fake news that is being you know yeah. uh, uh, I mean, peddled around, right? I imagine if you walk into a village and you've got a nice story about how you and Odin went for a, for a walk and 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 whatever whatever happened on it. Is a much better story than, and you would be bet, met with a much nicer reception than if you walked and it was like, "Uh, oh, hi." Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was that was the you know I've travelled from. I didn't really see anything. I've just travelled from over there, and 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 you know what? Thing uh, people actually knew this at least to some extent. We, we can see in the the, the medieval literature about uh, sagas and uh, and other things. Like sometimes they say things like. Yeah, and he told the story better than it has ever been told before. Which means then that people knew that there were other versions of the stories and they favored you know, a particular version of the story based on a bunch of uh, factors like how well was it told, uh, was it exciting enough, and so on. So, you know, in that sense, they didn't necessarily care if it was entirely correct in terms of truth well you know what that's similar to how we you know i was watching vikings at the end of the day it's about entertainment and you don't necessarily care that it's factually correct it entertains you and and these people didn't have tvs they didn't have radios they had nothing for entertainment so when somebody comes and tells you a nice story you're not going to be that bothered if it's a little bit made up because it entertained you. It made you laugh. It made you feel emotion. It made you you cry or get angry, and that's why they, they told these stories. That was an important thing. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. We still function in that way in so many ways. I think that's a perfect perfect ending spot. Absolutely. <laughs> now it's been fun. Hopefully, again, people people enjoy it. Uh, if you do, please take a few minutes and just pop onto whatever platform you're listening on. Give us a five star review and. Well, five stars and a nice review it really helps other people find us helps us get out there let's you know people discover us hopefully we can get more listeners and just keep growing in, keep going in the direction we've been we've been going in yeah man i am i'm really excited about this and uh, you know we're uh we're bringing a sound guy in to help us out and i hope i hope that it we're we're Saying less um, yeah. <laughs> and so on. I think we we're, we're gonna get better and better. I think I think our chemistry is definitely improved as we go along, and hopefully we're getting into a nice flow of things. And we, I think we're going in the right direction anyway. I totally agree. Thanks everybody for listening. Thank, yeah, thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.
They show up on the shores. The linguistic differences between the languages that are being spoken by these Angles and Saxons in in England um, and then the Scandinavians aren't that big. They would be able to communicate with one another. It's not like what we see in Vikings where they're like, oh, I have to learn your language. It's more like, oh, you speak my language, but it's broken. <laughs> you know. So so they're much more you know, similar than different. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, so they already knew that the Britain was there, that it wasn't a case of like, I guess if anybody's watched the show Vikings, as you, as you just referenced, <laughs> in the first episode, I think Ragnar has like his little stone and it, it's almost like they're a discovering of a new land. Yeah, no. Um, no that's kind that's... of how it's made out to be. It's, you know, it's, 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 I've got this stone, it lets me go, you know, sail, sail to, to, to a different place and then we've discovered this new land that's, that's, that's got wealth. And Yeah, no, we have pre-Viking age um, Scottish artifacts found in Norwegian graves. So there's there's communication across. Um, yeah, there's, they, they know about each other and to some extent there are relations too. And, um, and that, of course, then, of course, should tell us that when when we when we see them in the source material um, talking about each other, um, especially the Saxons talking about these Northmen or Danes or heathens, as they usually call them, as uh, um, when they talk about them as, as something that they don't really know or understand, um, that's political. It's it's because it's because all of these people showed up and and started conquering stuff. That's why we don't like them. It's not because we don't know who they are. It's not because they they are like in fundamentally different from us. You know, they're probably you know, they are very certainly primarily pagans, right? Um, and and uh, we're dealing with uh, English kingdoms uh, that are Christian at this time. But nonetheless, aside from that. We know pretty much who, who we're dealing with here. We we know that that oh these these guys are the ones who are doing the same thing as our you know ancestors that we saw the light and became Christians instead, and and that's the main difference between us. And then the fact, of course, that they kind of seem to want to conquer stuff at this point. Yeah, so it's not it's not just some new some new race of people that have never been seen before that. Are, Giants and swinging these giant axes around. And, <laughs> Absolutely <you> know, not. <laughs> and and the other thing is that you know this this what we can see is also when we look at you know the prolifer the proliferation of artifacts in trade ports in Scandinavia in this period in the Viking Age. When we can see that there is a drop in trade, that's when we see you know warfare intensifying. So. What we're really dealing with here is, is uh, you know, local chieftains, rulers, and so on, trying to maintain a steady income. And if they can't get that from trade, then they get it from warfare. 
and conquest. That, of course, then begs the question, what is the Scandinavian motivation for going you know, to the British Isles particularly? Because that is something that they do. And, it, I mean, you, you can see this from all the Scandinavian place names scattered around the, the English countryside. Uh, there's there's a, a very big influx of Scandinavians in this period. It, they're probably just doing exactly what their cousins did. Uh, you know, the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes that came from southern Scandinavia and northern Germany. Uh, these later Scandinavians, 300 years later, 400 years later, they they know what's up. They, they're like, yeah, let's go do what, uh, you know, those you know, distant cousins did some, some several hundred years ago. Let's uh, just, you know, go colonize. <laughs> yeah, let's go take some, take some wealth. Yeah, and you know what? Maybe, maybe they, they even expected, you know, a friendly greeting. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like, you don't. I mean, <laughs> you don't know. I mean, you, again, you've got to remember it's a different time. There's, there's no internet. There's no kind of like, let's just see what's going on over there. Let's message our, our friends who, who moved to a different land. You, they have no, they probably have no idea what they're ultimately going to find. No, and um, I mean, they, they, all they know is reports from uh, traveling merchants, right, that are coming through the area. And and if some traveling merchant says, you know what, there are these you know awesome places where uh, they have a bunch of gold and they have no guards because all they do is pray to some god we don't know anything about, then of course somebody's going to say, well, that's an easy target. That's my sitting duck right there. Let me shoot it. <laughs> well that, that that's it that's i mean let's go make a name for ourselves let's uh let's go take some gold yeah exactly what is really interesting is of course this concept of the dane law that's then being established right and um because we, we then have a treaty that is being settled where we sort of like define some kind of uh weird boundary uh, between where scandinavians are and um where where the uh, Saxons are. But the thing about this Dane law is that we can't really find any really solid evidence for actual legal concepts that are specific to the Dane law and also similar to what we see in Scandinavia. So, so it's not like, you know, this is quote unquote Danish law that rules this area. Um, it's more something that, that has to do with um, ethnic distinctions, perhaps, because we see, you know, in times of political turmoil, the, the difference between Danes or Northmen, as they are also called, and then Angles and Saxons or Anglo-Saxons is being invoked, you know, again and again. And we also have, you know, genocides, um, it, it attempted exterminations of Scandinavians um, and then retaliations as well. And that is where things really start to in integrate in the beginning of the thousands. And then, of course, what we already have at that point is an integrated elite, right? We have a English, Scottish uh, even, and then Scandinavian elite that is being more and more integrated. And that's, of course, also part of where Normandy fits into the picture, right? Because what do we have in the beginning of the thousands? Well, we have Knut the Great who manages to take over, um, what is it, in uh, 10, 16 to 18. He's 
um, he's waging war and then he gets elected um, in the Wheaton as king of England. He's more a king of England than he's a king of any Scandinavian country, even though we Danes love to say that he's a Danish king. And then, you know, um, uh, some 40, uh, no, 50 years later, we have, um, we have Willem the Conqueror showing up. And who is Willem the Conqueror? Well, he's a cousin of, of these guys, <laughs> right? Yeah, I always, um, I always find that quite interesting because my, my kind of like lineage goes back to the, to the Normans. So it's always been my little sneaky way of being like, oh, well, you know, cousins <laughs> of the Vikings. So there's a link there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's always uh, there's always a way to link back to the Vikings one way or another. Yeah, and 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 that's that's again like if we go back to the example of the Goths. So we have these um Vikings that go to Normandy, get land, and then you know, start speaking f- some kind of French. And they, they use their own terminology for certain things. Uh, several, uh, you know, maritime words in French and especially in Norman French um, are direct descendants of, of Scandinavian, the same in English, right? When, when the, the, the whole thing goes down at Stamford Bridge, right? What do we have? We have Harold Godwinson, the so-called last Anglo-Saxon king on the one side, and we have um, um, Harold Hardruler, a so-called Norwegian king on the other side. Why is Harold Hardruler there? Well, he's there because he's got a family tie claim to the throne. And Harold Godwinson, as much as he is Anglo-Saxon, his mother uh, is Scandinavian. And then, you know, Harold Godwinson is lucky enough to defeat his cousin, (laughs) or distant cousin. And that's when his other distant cousin then shows up, what, eight months later and and defeats him in Hastings. (laughs) Oh, it's it's such a mess. It is such a mess. It is such a mess. I I don't think we or anybody can ever straighten it out completely. No, no, of course not. Um, but it's interesting, though, that, you know, when we talk about English history, Norman conquest is sometimes, at least, maybe more often than not, represented as some kind of like French invasion. Right? Yeah. But, but it's not a French no, no. invasion the, the, more than anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, the Vikings got us one way or another. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> and that's <laughs> when... A, they, that, I think our, you know, our histories, our our DNA is 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 locked together. No matter how you how you look at it, whether you're you're English or you're Scandinavian. Oh yes, yeah. you know our the histories are just entangled for forever. I think you're right about that. <laughs> right, I think that's a a good place to to wrap this up. It's been a I think it's been a long one, but hopefully we we straighten out a few things, a few. A few words that, that people get thrown about and and hopefully straight out for, for going forward so people have a better understanding about what all these things mean. I know I certainly do. Uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad that, that you do. I, I, I hope uh, um, your listeners are bear with me uh, yeah. <laughs> as I no, go on these long rants. And no, they, trust me, the messages we get, they, they definitely enjoy Enjoy that's, the long rants. That's that's wonderful. If nothing else, you can always pass. Okay, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so going forward, we we we're going to try and commit to 
two episodes a month on the 1st and the 15th of every month. So just try and get a bit more structure, try and get a bit, a bit more regularity to it so you guys know exactly where we're going to be releasing the next episode so you can anticipate it. Absolutely, yeah. And, and we love those uh, listener questions. So um, we're, we're going to put in a segment at the end of uh, each uh, episode from now on where we take questions um, that uh, Daniel will uh, uh, pick out of a hat or something like that. <laughs> I'm sure I'll advertise them for on our Instagram and we'll, uh, we'll make a list, you know. Yeah, do a couple each, each show. I think that'll be fun. Yeah. And basically, yeah, I mean, if anybody has... Has any feedback for us? Any anything you'd like us to add, or anything we, we could alter or do better? Feel free to let us know. I mean, pos positive or negative feedback is always the best way to learn. It's we're we're not going to get upset if you say, you know, we like the show, but maybe if you did this, obviously, please don't just come at us and be like, you know, it, it's it's shit. Just give up. <laughs> stop doing what you're doing. But you at least, you know, it, yeah, you, you guys are terrible. Like at least, you know, if you, if you come and say, you know. Start out with something nice, maybe we enjoy the show, but and then and then you know just let us know what we could we, we could maybe do better, what we could change. We we we're both learning at this. We're both you know trying to do try to pick up as we go along. We certainly are. I want to yeah. thank everybody who has been listening to this uh, episode, and I am looking forward to hearing your comments and feedback and questions in the future. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's been a long one, so hopefully you've all all enjoyed it, and we will we will see you soon.